Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I am Michael, and with me is Cameron. I'm a cursed uh, jester grandma. That's me. Yep. Cameron has uh, morphed into a cursed jester grandma. Bloopity blue. <laughs> the way of all people who read Homestuck. Mm, cookies. <laughs> I like, uh, I think it's in this, I'm pretty sure it's in uh, the second half of Act 2 where that little imp's trying to eat her cookies and she obliterates it yes. with a laser beam. <laughs> yes, she uses her like NPC powers to just destroy <laughs> that imp. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, yeah, so t- uh, today on, uh, this is episode uh, one still, we're still in episode one, but this is part four. And mm-hmm. we are going to be finishing up act two and with that we will finish up the entirety of episode one of this podcast so that's great great news wow (laughs) yeah uh well i feel like i know you're about to do a summary but i feel like uh the first half of act two is a lot of setup Mm -hmm. and uh the second half of act two is a lot of setup (laughs) Well, somehow, <laughs> somehow, somehow you can have two halves that are also a lot of setup. Yeah. And that's going to be, I think, when we get into the discussion, that's going to be evident, I think, in kind of the reader response of the time, which is uh, this is when my records, uh, my my thread records uh, really come together. Uh, so just to you know let you know of sort of the bodies of evidence that I'm using uh, one. The official MSPA forums are archived, but also very incomplete. They're they're archived primarily on Internet Archive. Uh, and when the website switched over, I think possibly when the Homestuck brand got sold to Viz uh, or just before, or just after. Anyway, there was uh, some web hosting uh, movement issues happened and basically the forums were totally lost. So all of all of kind of that original stuff is just gone. Um, and what remains is a bunch of stuff that's on the Internet Archive and is very, very spotty. Uh, like the earliest kind of live discussion threads I could find uh, were definitely coming like they, they were in, I think, probably Act 5 or Act 6. So there's a lot of information there that I think is just totally lost. Um, what I'm going to be reading uh, primarily are going to be the something awful forums archives threads uh, because these are all still there. They are pristine except for all of the images that, uh, you know, all the, the old hosting has died because Imager mm-hmm. did had just come into existence and not a lot of people were using it yet. Uh, so a whole lot of things there are just kind of gone. Uh, this would have been uh, photo bucket time still. Yeah, yeah. Nope. There are photo bucket links that are there that are coming up like, you know, this this link doesn't work anymore. Uh, so I'm missing out on some just, you know, uh, fun little bits of fan art or what have you. Uh, but this is really where the something awful threads uh pick up or you know, I, I, it's really one thread. It's not like there were multiple threads running, running in parallel, but like when one thread got too long, they would close it and start another. Uh, so that's going to be interesting, uh, because, you know, these are threads that I also posted in, so I, I'm not going to show up yet, uh, and I probably won't in that thread for quite some time, but if 
anything that seems interesting about me specifically uh, shows up, then I'll maybe talk about it. But most of the time it was just in the way that one uh, might expect for someone who ends up making a podcast uh, like this. M a lot of my work uh, in that space was just being like reading the comic and like pulling themes out and explaining them and being like, well, you see, these themes come together and result in this kind of effect. And I think that that has this kind of bearing on stuff that's going to happen later right that kind of speculation mm, um from uh from poster to podcaster the michael lutz story yeah that's really it and i also i want to be clear i'm not saying that it's like oh i had like a better form of fan engagement i'm just saying like this that was my fan engagement like that's what i did is i sort of mm -hmm. was critically reading this thing even as it was being posted uh and mm -hmm. so uh, yeah, that that's kind of going to be an interesting thing going forward, although uh, the threads are they're lively, but they are not as lively as I remember them being in the future. So that's another kind of interesting uh, thing in, in the way that we talked about last episode, uh, you know, part of what's uh nice about this project is being able to shake off the latter half of Homestuck in order to look at sort of the beginning half. So I know in the very first episode, I said something about how uh, Hussey tended to be pretty coy and mysterious about things being planned ahead or not planned ahead. And that's very true, I think, in, in kind of the latter half of things, uh, when talking directly to the fan base, I think, becomes a much more volatile situation. Uh, but kind of in the first half, Hussey's pretty forthcoming about a lot of stuff. Uh, and even in the commentary, uh, they're pretty forthcoming about certain things, but it tends to be things like, uh, here's an idea that I thought I would pursue that I never did. So hmm. not like, you know, great stuff to like pull in center into your analysis, but interesting nonetheless. So anyway, uh, you know, we're starting here at the beginning. We've got a lively kind of thread that I'm reading along with this and some other fan stuff. Uh, but you know, I guess let's get to it. Let's get to the summary of the back half of act two. In a flashback to the previous winter, we learn Rose took up knitting because John sent her yarn and needles for her birthday. As Rose talks with Gigi, Gigi explains she has been working on her present for John's upcoming birthday, which is to say, you know, the birthday that we're now witnessing, quote, for years. And it's strongly implied that she lives in some place strange and distant from everyone else. There's a comment made about how long mail takes to, to get there and to leave there. Dave sets out about his apartment to find replacement sperb discs, and in the process encounters increasingly distressing aspects of his bro's puppet fascination slash online puppet pornography business, including his bro's prized ventriloquist dummy, Little Cal, who seems to follow Dave around the apartment. Rose and John work together to learn more about abstruse game concepts and to fight the jester imps. Rose also begins building the house up to the first gate in specification, or according to the specifications of Nanosprite. After John has fled to his father's study, uh, WV returns to the narrative prompt and politely asks to borrow a can opener. Suddenly overtaken with a desire to find a can opener, John becomes unresponsive because he cannot reach the kitchen due to a refrigerator Rose dropped in the way earlier. Eventually, WV departs and John learns about a punch card system for his inventory. Rose accidentally breaks open John's dad's safe, which contains an ancient copy of the Colonel Sassaker book, a shaving almanac, and some mysterious newspaper clippings about meteor strikes going back decades. 
Dave searches out his bro's sperb discs and discovers more disturbing puppet bullshit as his bro and Lil Cal stalk him around the house. Eventually, Bro leaves Dave an ironically taunting note demanding Dave meet him for a showdown on the roof of their building. Using punch cards, John figures out a way to use the game to manufacture new weapons and items. Rose's generator dies as John is attacked by a pair of new, very big enemies. Dave ascends to duel his bro on the rooftop. The comic psychs us out by then switching to focus uh, on someone who we can assume is Gigi, a young woman standing in a, a very strange room. Uh, we get just a page of this one second, and then the comic psychs us out again by then abruptly shifting focus to WV in the underground bunker. WV uses his canned goods to build a small town and then becomes the mayor of Cantown. WV, we learn, hates kings. Nevertheless, while playing pretend, he uses chalk to draw a chessboard on the ground and populates the sky with a series of strange planets, telling us something about where he comes from. Using the terminal he's used to view and talk to John, WV views Rose and Dave's homes, where things are in the past relative to him, but actually in the future relative to the point where we last left these narratives, uh, and things maybe don't seem to be going very well. WV accidentally initiates some sort of countdown in the bunker and in a panic descends into hours of mayor-based Fantasia. In a distant part of the desert wasteland, another character named the Peregrine Mendicant pushes a cart of mailboxes through the sands. WV tries to escape his bunker but is trapped inside. Using a strange device called an Apurifier, he conjures a pumpkin carved with a mysterious symbol from parts unknown and then frees a firefly from a chunk of petrified amber. The firefly becomes his friend and he names her Serenity in a reference that has aged like milk. WV then tries to purify an object from his own recent past, but because doing so would cause a time paradox, he only purifies a pile of slime. He then purifies the grate trapping him in the bunker, but spends so much time trying to pack, he does not escape before the countdown reaches zero. Now begins uh, the end of act animation. We've already had one of these at the end of act one, uh, but this one, uh, the end of act two, it's an animation called WV Ascend, uh, is known as kind of one of the, the flashpoints or tipping points for the comic in terms of, uh, you know, the, the fan base's responses and kind of reader buy-in and, and sort of like what this story is up to. Uh, and it communicates a lot of information so uh notably i have just like a full block paragraph explaining what happens in this thing <clears throat> the narrative tries to psych us out one more time before admitting no we're going to pursue these five concurrent cliffhangers wv emerges from his bunker and we glimpse nearby the broken hand of the wizard statue from rose's house the bunker suddenly launches into the sky with wv on top and flies westward over what we can now clearly see is the north american continent over the pacific northwest the view shifts backward in time to show john's neighborhood which is decimated by the meteor strike from the end of act one then, over the course of centuries, this crater becomes part of the desert wasteland. A massive tree grows from the crater where the meteor hit and drops a large bulbous object emblazoned with the Spurb logo. By the time we're back in the future, uh, it is, uh, you know, WV's time, it is the peregrine mendicant whom we saw earlier who is walking by this. Overhead, uh, WV passes in uh, his little rocket thing and they see one another. 
Then, further west, in many years in the past, many, many years in the past, we see a volcano on the rocky surface of the primordial Earth. In space, a Skya gate opens and releases a meteor, which lands near the volcano and forms a crater. Over billions of years, the region becomes a small vo volcanic island and lagoon in the Pacific Ocean, on which is built some sort of temple adorned with the statue of a frog. Meanwhile, back in kind of like the quote-unquote present of the narrative, Rose bellows her frustration at losing power as a meteor-induced forest fire encircles her house. While Mom watches from the window, a flash of lightning reveals that the lab behind Rose's house has the Skya gate pattern on it. Mom presses a switch that opens a secret tunnel in the foundation of Jasper's mausoleum. Elsewhere, while being escorted somewhere by imps, John's dad escapes with his trick handcuffs and then turns to fight. Dave, meanwhile, stares down his bro and Lil Cal on the rooftop while the city around them crumbles under the meteors. Finally, in the future, WV's rocket lands outside the ruins of the Frog Temple and Act 2 ends. Yeah, that certainly happened. <laughs> That uh, I mean, we'll talk about that in the animation. I don't, I don't want to get there uh, too soon, but uh, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch we can say about about that ending animation. Uh, but I don't know what are what are things that you want to say before then? Uh, yeah. Let me look at my notes here. So, um, at the very end of the last one. So I, there's so much more, uh, God, wayward vagrant. Mm -hmm. <sighs> These names, pe Peregrine Mendicant. Uh, by the way, the Peregrine Mendicant looks like Mr. Meeseeks from uh, Rick and Morty. Hmm. 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 What do you think about that? Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Unfortunate. Hmm. Yeah. Or not. Just a just a thought. The first time anyone ever recommended Rick and Morty to me, it was when the, it was within the context of Homestuck. So. And they were like, have you ever seen something so cool? You want to see it? You want to see something even more cool? <laughs> want to watch a whole show where people only talk like this? Everyone <laughs> has the same voice. Some people have this voice. Some people have the same voice. Some people, some people sound like this, and they're all the same. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, like, hook that to my veins. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> oh... Uh, the, uh, but yeah, so, uh, I really like all the stuff that we get with the, uh, wayward vagrant here. I like that he learns etiquette and so <laughs> is no longer mean to John Egbert in his commands or its commands. I don't, I don't know. Uh, we don't know much about it, but, uh, in their commands, uh, yeah, it's like, please boy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> please, John, I would appreciate you too. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> The diagrams in the book of uh, uh, etiquette are very funny too because they're like they like explain like how to eat and like what food is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but uh, so I enjoy that. I enjoy like kicking back and forth here. This that we get so much. I, I would say. I mean, is this inaccurate to say that the vast majority of the back half of Act Two is just about Dave standing in the kitchen? Yeah, there's there's a good bit of that. And Dave's like goddamn fetch modus, uh, which we didn't talk yep. about uh, because it's it's a hash map and it's extremely complicated. And 
clearly part of the humor here. And this is one of those things where, you know, archive versus serial. Uh, if I'm reading this as a serial reader, yeah, I can jump in and read six pages about Dave futzing around with the hash map. Like that's that's enough content for my day. Uh, but once he's like having to come up, I mean, it, it's actually a, the the good joke uh, is when he has to start like saying the uh, like coming up with new names for things. So they'll have mm -hmm. different uh, syllable values so they can go into different cards in his Silidex. Yeah, and then there's like a long section where it's like choosing new hash modes. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know. It's just, there's a lot going on. I mean, on. there's a whole thing here about like weaponizing your Silidex. Yeah. Blah. Blah. I absolutely hate literally every piece of this, but I it's all happening within the context of Dave needs to go into his bro's room to get the server copy of Sburb to get, uh, to end the world basically for, uh, Rose so that she can go help John Egbert. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's, that's the, the thrust of what's going on here. And so everything, and this is something I talk about, you know, in the last part too, right? Where it's like, all right, Let's like, I know what needs to be done here. Why are we taking so long to get there? And it's because of this kind of game-like nature of like trying to bring people in and giving them opportunities to do stuff. And um, I, I, it is very clear to me at this point that I enjoy the parts where um, Hussey is moving the plot along and I do not like the parts where people can participate in any way. <laughs> <laughs> like that's very clear at this point to me. Well, uh... <laughs> John also learns a lot of like mechanisms and things like that involving. I actually find these things to be interesting. The like punch card stuff mm -hmm. and all of that. I find that to be pretty cool. I really like when he combines those objects, <laughs> the ghost uh, pogo and um, the hammer, the hammer to create the the bounce hammer or whatever, mm -hmm. boing hammer, pogo hammer. Uh, I like that. I like some of the stuff involving. Um, I think I just like John Egbert more. <laughs> <laughs> like I think I just like that more, and I like the idea that 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 it's that section is people playing not with like an inventory system, but like what happens when you combine these different items to do so it feels more like an adventure game, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, where like the, the fun part of an adventure game is not the inventory management. I'm like 99% sure. <laughs> Pretty sure of that. But yeah, but, uh, I liked all that. I thought that was fun. Uh, and I thought that the, like, as John and Rose understood the game better, that things like really picked up and started clicking because, mm -hmm. you know, like she's able to move all of her stuff around and like make it happen. She's like making stairs. Gosh, the I warned you about stairs, bro. Joke really got me. Yeah. When the Sweet Bro and Hello Jeff comics first show up in the book, in the print commentary, one of the things Hussey explains, uh, you know, one of the reasons this was brought in essentially uh, was that they thought it would be good to have a kind of in-house source of memes that the kids would reference with one another, uh, which I think is actually just like a, it's a brilliant sort of move uh, because it really solidifies this sense of uh, these kids being a friend group. Uh, you know, having their own little in jokes that are just references to things that what is in comic, uh, this extremely shitty thing that Dave is posting on the Internet that probably no one else is reading aside from them and like his brother. 
uh, mm-hmm. but they have their own little, you know, jokes. And then what, you know, the, the other kind of nice move here is that because the reader is also reading this comic, then we get pulled into that little circle of in jokes. And so we have, yeah, John uh, trying to go up the stairs and then he falls and uh, Rose can be like, well, I warned you. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, something, the title of of the very thing that you're listening to kind of hints at this, right? This is the entire Disney Corporation's strategy going forward, right? Like, like what, what we are experiencing, obviously, this is not... It's not unique to Homestuck. Homestuck didn't invent this. I think at this point, Lost had already run its ARG, right, mm-hmm. with the Dharma Initiative and all that kind of stuff. And that was web pages and, like, referential, uh, not quite memes, right, but but uh, inter, inter-referential stuff. And ARGs had been around for quite a, quite a while. And comic books had been around for, you, you know, in, in the form that we associate them with, this kind of corporate structure with canonicity and reference for 50 years at this point. So, um, you know... Homestuck's not inventing this, but this is really like the internet-enabled version of this, mm-hmm. or or the um, you know up from the ground, and even more importantly, it's all like home home rolled, as it were, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or like homebrew stuff. In that, as you're saying, it's Hussey making the memes that then are fictional memes that then become the thing that get referenced. And so, you know, it's something I call, I think last time, like a uh, uh, sunk cost <laughs> uh, storytelling in some ways, right? Like you were rewarded for dedicating way too much time during Homestuck. And look, I, I don't think I said this uh, last time, but when uh, uh, Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff was introduced a few uh, pages back, I read the whole website for Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff. <laughs> like I read every single comic. Um, and so, and I don't think those all existed necessarily at this point, but it kind of gives you a sense of like that. That's the mode of expectation wait, wait. is like, yeah. Go oh, ahead. how many comics were there? <sighs> There's like 20 something. Okay. Did they all exist? No, there was just maybe about like, uh, I think maybe three or four at this time. And I didn't know if, uh, if the, uh, the archive, the unofficial collection, if it would have gated those or not. It did not gate those. I was able to read all of them. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I assume just because of how many there were and like the the production schedule of Homestuck, I assume that they were kind of being concurrently produced. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe that's a thing too. Is maybe I shouldn't be assuming anything with this. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it, it felt like there were there was uh, more there. But anyway, so I you know I read all of those things and read that whole website, and it's uh, very much a a. Um, product of its time (laughs) as we talked about in last episode across the board although there is one comic i guess this is spoilers for later in time but there is one comic that is about one of them accidentally filleting a horse or a pony (laughs) yes that in its very construction of like the way it is is depicted and shown and like this like uh, deep fried JPEG kind of look to it is certainly an aesthetic experience. I'll tell you that mm-hmm. uh, without without getting any more graphic than that. So uh, check out Sweet Bro and Hell Jeff at your own expense <laughs> and and take this as a warning. Um, but uh, yeah, we got a lot of puppetry here. Look, what's the story of these puppets, Michael? Well, I mean, Dave's bro is 
really into puppets. Ironically, of course, this is all ironic. And this is, uh, you know, digging into kind of the fan uh, response at this time. Uh, so much of the threads and like the the moment to moment response is so fascinating because it is just people reading the comic in real time and then not having any more comic to read and that in itself producing like this massive space of ambiguity where it seems like anything is possible, even though clearly that's not the case. So, uh, for example, uh, generally speaking, with regard to the Guardians, the thing that is happening in the threads right now is People are picking up on something that I talked about last episode, which is that uh, you can get the sense that the relationships that the kids are projecting with the Guardians are not the ways that the Guardians are perceiving those relationships themselves that like, you know, there's there's some sort of disconnect between John and his dad and between Rose and mom. Uh, and then this gets flipped on its head with Dave, where Dave is like, no, my brother is like the coolest person on Earth. Uh, he's great. And then like that, the house, the apartment is by far the creepiest because there's just puppets everywhere and like ventriloquist dummies. And just as in in John's house where there are portraits of Harlequins on the walls, here we have portraits of ventriloquist dummies. Uh, and this is to say nothing of what appear to be like bros custom made puppets, which have uh, large protruding uh, posteriors and big phallic noses. And then when Dave is like looking at his brother's, you know, quote unquote, ironic websites, it off it, it seems an awful lot like bro is just running some sort of weird like porn website that exclusively features puppets. Yeah, he's a a. a puppet a porn puppeteer yes uh and and dave is just constantly saying like no puppets are really cool and my bro's doing so many ironic things with this and the the discussions that people are having in the threads are like oh man i bet bro's really actually secretly into this and he's a huge pervert or something um when really like it, it's it, and this happens because you get just like little chunks of this story dripped out to you day by day. Uh, and what you're what these people are doing is, you know, they're reading the text and then sort of approaching their own apprehension, like their own comprehension of the thing they just read as a kind of revelation when it's just what the story is telling you. Well, but that's kind of like the weird thing is it's like. I mean, this is how this whole comic works at this point. Mm -hmm. Because of the gap, the gutter, right? Uh, okay, so like, you know, uh, good old-fashioned, I think this has come up before already, but like Scott McCloud, uh, understanding comics, right? You know, good old-fashioned uh, comic studies text. The, the, the space in between two panels has infinite possibility in it. You know, it's, it's the gutter and the way that we transcend the gutter or cut across it uh, with our assumptions... Uh, has a lot to do, you know, has a lot to do with how we, you know, uh, experience the comic in a broad sense. So, like, uh, does it meet our expectations? The thing that follows, uh, you know, panel one to panel two, does it meet our expectations? Does it buck our expectations? Um, can we reliably make inferences between those two things? Um, so, in a, a superhero comic, or you know, go and pick a, a random Marvel comic, that comic is going to feel weird if you cannot make. Uh, strong inferences image to image about what is happening. Um, there's a whole Marvel style that's about that. 
um, and you know it goes all the way to, back to Jack Kirby. The the example that always gets uh, talked about, and I think uh, David Brothers introduced this to me way back on fourth fourth panel or fourth letter fourth letter, um, uh, probably about the time that Homestuck was coming out, honestly. But uh, the uh, Silver Surfer falling image, mm. you know, where Silver Surfer slowly but surely from panel to panel gets further and further away and we're looking down at the city and eventually it's just the city. It's this beautiful kind of demonstration of movement and time and all those things are always happening panel to panel. Versus if you pick up, uh, say, a velvet glove cast in iron and you, uh, you're going to warp from t- time and space from panel to panel, you're going to get radically unrelated images sometimes and you're in the work of reading that comic is like trying to put those things together and occasionally you know he'll use uh dan Klaus will use like a, a montage technique and mimicking film mm-hmm. so you're seeing bunches you know lots of different locations kind of back to back homestuck is you know it's it's a comic in that regard you only see one at a time but the way that it uses that that the 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 uh the gutter mm-hmm. there right is so much more expansive and, he, and you've brought this up already in the in the show but i'm reiterating that here that it's so much more expansive because no one thing in the comic is any more surprising than any other thing any other random thing on the planet mm-hmm. um like we predictably jump in time and space um there is no expectation of what is rational or irrational within it um, and so, you, you know, the, 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 what you're talking about here, as far as like something can just be the story being told, or it can be a revelation. Uh, there is no def- there, there's no dividing line between that and Homestuck so far. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there is no difference from the reader's perspective between something that is just normal causative action. You know, you attack the imp and the imp ex- explodes, or you, tr- you drop the refrigerator on the imp and the imp explodes. And uh, we are going to jump an infinite number of time in the future. Mm-hmm. Like there's no phenomenal readerly difference between those things. And Homestuck has already, at the, even at this point, like less than a thousand pages into it, has set that up as the standard. And so I, I totally get that kind of reader response here because there's no like training in culture on how to read this mm-hmm. thing. It really is a unique and odd kind of object. Yeah, there's no bottom to it. If you're reading it live. Absolutely. And there's no sides and there's no top either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, like there is no, there's no map other than linear time. You will experience it in phenomenal time. But as far as like uh, empirical expectations of what could or could not happen or what the bounds are, those are out the window entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I, I, I totally get why this comic had such a power continues to have such a powerful fan base because I imagine if I had not read like a bunch of modernist literature or if I hadn't read like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of pages of comic books that this might really have hit me very hard. You know, if I read this when I was 13 years old, I I would be in it like in it, in it, in it. Um, because this is really melding a lot of stuff. I guess one less, less kind of thing here in my monologue is that something you and I have talked about a bit uh, in our messages but hasn't come up on the show yet is I think that a major kind of intertext or related textual object here is Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, I, and I say that not because this is like doing things that Watchmen does necessarily or like is following the pattern, but 
Watchmen developed a really stable format and a very stable set of rules. So, you know, like the nine panel frame, uh, the way that Dr. Manhattan is able to interact with other pages of the comic book mm-hmm. that are physically mapped together in space. So you can you can literally take pages of Watchmen and fold them into a circle, and you can see Dr. Manhattan responding to things that are later or beforehand in time from a different middle point in the comic. So, you know, if I'm, I, this is just like numbers, but you can see him responding to things that are physically located in the same panel that he is on page 15, but those other events are on like page four and page 35. So there's all kinds of weird stuff going on if you're paying attention to how Watchmen works with the way it interacts with time and space and kind of additional textual materials. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of every uh, uh, Watchmen issue, there's like these big intertextual text things that exist there. And so I really started feeling that in this section that we were reading of like, oh yeah, this is a lot of the strategies that were developed in physical comics, you know, uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. almost. Well, no, I guess 15 years ago when this came out. Um, No, I'm sorry. I keep saying it. It is 20 years, I guess, when this came out or close. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you see, you know, that this is kind of a development of what I see as some really, um, uh, uh, previously existing strategies in comics. Yeah, I was wondering if uh, it was going to be, I mean, I, I suspected it was going to be some panel stuff. So you, we, you've you mentioned that you are seeing Watchmen as an intertext here, and I said that I was interested in hearing more about that um, because I was like, oh, yeah, because you are actually, I think, probably the, the more comics uh, literate person of the two of us. Like, you've actually... I think at one point you said that you might have been a comics person, like you could have been a comics academic. Yeah, I mean, I went to grad school with the with the belief and expectation that I was going to study comic books. I like wrote my my grad school application essay stuff about comics. I think my writing sample was about comics. Um, And basically in between in between doing writing those application materials and going to grad school, I was like, no, I think I'm interested in video games. Mm um more i was kind of like half and half and i kind of made that decision over that because the summer you know here's just some like thoughts but the summer after you graduate from college you the kind of the world is wide open especially if you have something else that's like kind of coming like going to grad school directly out of undergrad where it was like i'd i'd saved up money from some student job stuff so i didn't really have to work and i like was able to move And I was just kind of like burning time and kind of like having anxiety about going to grad school. And so that's the time where you can really kind of like just think and do some stuff. Um, And uh, that's what I did is I decided I didn't want to study what I applied for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. uh, So obviously you're going to bring in, I think, more thoughtful information and also better read information. Like you've read the Animal Man run. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, you should read it, but before the next time we record, you should read the Animal Man okay. run. It, it will not. It will take less time for you to read that than it's taken me to read this much Homestuck. Okay. So, um, pretty pretty quick and definitely. I, I think that I think you'll be surprised actually by how much these things seem to resonate with one another. All right. Well, good to know. And that's a. I'll put it on my to do list. Uh, yeah. So there, there's kind of the Watchmen thing. I was also thinking when you brought it up of, uh, you know, the the intertext things, particularly with like, and, and I mean like intertext between the texts, like Rose's game fact, um, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Which is very much like a, you've reached the the end of this issue of Watchmen. Uh, now it's time to read like a psychologist's report on one of the characters, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, the in-world newspaper, mm-hmm. the it's not the New Frontiersman, but something like that yeah. right, is the name of it. It's, it's this kind of thing that like fleshes out the world. It, it both fleshes out the world, but gives you like ideological perspectives on that world. Mm-hmm. And uh, Game Facts is in fact an ideological perspective on the world, right? right? Like a, as an entity, it, it exerts certain pressures about what we believe about games culture mm-hmm. um, in the way that all publications that deal with games do. And so um, definitely, I think those are, are pretty deeply related. And importantly, the kind of... Su- the relatedness, right, is it's not just a because there's another way of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Like another way of doing it would that would be just as accurate to games culture would be it's just a text file, just a, like a notepad file, and you can read raw text, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that the uh, um, uh, conversations are just at the bottom from from uh, Pester Chum, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, and those existed and those were passed around, and you could download those off people's websites or just look at their like raw HTML websites. That was certainly a part of games culture, but Game Facts is a particular form of that in games culture. And Hussey, you know, replicates the whole web page look. That's on purpose. That's exactly the same maneuver as um, as what more and. Uh, Dave something. I'm blanking on his uh, last name. Gibbons? But, um, Dave Gibbons. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I love uh, how you're you're thanks. the comics guy, but I'm the guy who's always going to remember a name. <laughs> I can I, yeah, exactly. I can't remember a single person's name to save their life. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but I can remember an aesthetic move. Um, but but yeah, you know, it's the kind of thing that they're doing there, and the newspaper looks like a newspaper, and it has the artifacts of that world in it. And the the psychologist report looks like a psychologist report, and it has the artifacts of that world in it. The Game Facts page looks like a Game Facts page, and it has you know the the banner stuff at the top and everything else too, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of realism effect, you know, reality effect from cinema studies that's going on there that makes it feel like it's really a part of the thing that that kind of gives a I don't know a bigger vibe to the the Homestuck comic itself. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's right. And I think it also, you know, speaks to something we talked about last time, which is like when the when the interactive pages started showing up and suddenly sort of the expectations for them, even though Hussey was very quick to kind of shut this down, the the expectations immediately shoot through the roof where it's like, oh, when do I get to build John's house myself and in that sort of thing. Uh, so there mm-hmm. is yeah. very much that's like not only what you're talking about, but the strong sense of like, and we can go even further now. <laughs> yeah. It's a you can go there logic. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of places we can go or might have already been. uh, The other thing I think to consider about bros puppet fixation or bros puppet work, I guess. uh, Well, so uh, we mentioned uh, previously that some of these chat logs, these pester logs are based on conversations that Hussey actually had with with friends. And uh, one of the sort of consequences of this is that the voice of Dave, and this is a thing that Hussey admits, um, admits very early on, uh, the voice of Dave in, in the chat logs is very close to kind of Hussey's chat voice at this time. Uh, and for some of these other reasons, uh, you know, Dave is also kind of the the first of a couple of author insert characters that we're going to see. Uh, that is to say, you know, the 
Dave as kind of like the cool guy who is very witty and very, I mean, he's making Sweet Bro and Hello Jeff. And people know that Hussey is the one who is making Sweet Bro and Hello Jeff. So there's like, uh, you know, that that layer of irony that we're constantly talking about with regard to Dave and Bro. Uh, But Bro himself Mm -hmm. is also kind of a Hussey figure. If you think about, you know, um, basically, if you try to take maybe the the most misanthropic and nihilistic perspective on what it means to be a serial storyteller uh, on the Internet, uh, it's about like, well, I have all of these puppets and I'm making them interact with each other to the delectation of my audience. And people are paying me to have these puppets like uh, engage possibly in sexual acts or, you know, some of the stuff that we get from from uh, bro suggests that he's also making like puppet snuff films, uh, deeply, deeply dark stuff that is also kind of held at a distance by the comic itself. And the fact that these puppets are just so ridiculous looking and like. Like they're they're you know the, the so the there are like actual ventriloquist dummies around the house and actual types of puppets, but then there's like a particular form of puppet that appears to be like Bro's invention, uh, which are these they look like you know '80s cartoon characters like Smurfs or something in that they're sort of humanoid little creatures with these big plump butts and the the long phallic noses, and I think they are called I mean I know they are called Smuppets. Uh, but I don't know if they've been named that in the comic yet. Uh, but what what does uh, what does Dave say about their butts? He has a very particular phrase he uses about their butt. I'm the plush rump. No, it's not. It's like salacious or something. Yes, something like that. <laughs> I can't. I should have written it down. Anyway, I mean, all of the stuff that is being said about I guess I should say, like, I think this puppet stuff is hysterical. Like, this is some of the funniest stuff in the comic to me. Um, And specifically, like the fact that Dave has already said to his friends, like, no, my and and this was one of the you know earliest conversations he has with John, uh, which is John is kind of like your brother's kind of a weirdo. Uh, John says, you know, he's like this. He's this. He's a white guy doing like weird puppet raps. And that's just there's weird vibes there, basically. And uh, impudent. Yeah, the impudent. He keeps saying that their butts are ju- are jutting out in impudence. Yes. <laughs> uh, so Dave is like, no, you don't understand. This is like extremely cool. My bro's the coolest guy. And then as he goes around the house, like the puppets are wigging him out more and more. And we get these. And because uh, the thing about Dave, as I've already mentioned um, in the summary for the previous episode, is that Dave's uh, chronological uh, narrative is out of step with the other characters. So when we start Dave's story, we actually jump back in time and we get uh, kind of earlier parts of his story and later parts. And we slowly see those two halves of the narrative come together. But what we so there's like a, a lacuna in the middle, like a gap. So we start with Dave's story uh, in the past. But then in the present, when Dave is walking around the apartment looking for his discs, uh, we don't know what's going on yet. But he keeps messaging both John and Rose. And he's just talking. He's just saying things like, yep, I'm still looking for those discs, by the way. Puppets still awesome. I love puppets. They're really cool. Just so you know. And then he'll, you know, leave the chat. Uh, And clearly, like something is going on, like protesting too much. And what is happening is, you know, he's getting really weirded out as he starts to kind of piece together that his bro's relationship to these puppets um, 
might be unhealthy in some way, or or at least strange uh, in a way that he's not willing to consciously acknowledge. Uh, but also, as I was saying, you know, the other sort of like layered joke here is that uh, there, there's some sort of like critique uh, of the medium, I think, happening. Uh, or at least the format of this comic of like, you know, you pay me to push these puppets around and have, you know, good or bad things happen to them. And that's that's what our transaction is. Um, I'm not going to say that this is like straight up. This is what Hussey believes about like their work in this comic in particular, uh, because I think, you know, this continues to happen for 7000 more pages. Uh, <laughs> uh, but as I said, it's kind of like, it's the most, uh, this is a thing that I think Hussey will kind of do is like take a thing and then like push it into a certain register. So this is when I said that this is kind of like the most sort of despicable or misanthropic way of apprehending that relationship. Um, that's what I mean, right? It's kind of like, you know, looking at what I do, what is kind of like the weirdest and most uncomfortable way of rearticulating my actual job uh, in order to, you know, make this kind of weird character and content out of it, if that makes sense. It does. And, you know, this is not uh, I think you're being very cautious and I think it's it's the right thing to do um, around like Dave is a self insert, but that doesn't mean that he is hussy. Yes. Right. You know, that doesn't mean they're exactly the same person. It's more that Dave is is maybe an exaggeration or a particular type of hussy ishness, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, um, in the way that probably all of these characters are in some some form or fashion. But but this one in particular is is really kind of tied to his uh, to, to their voice. Right. Right. right exactly. Um, but uh, but the, but but I think you're right in that. All of Dave's situations and the way that Dave kind of talks about the world is very much, it seems like, based on what, what Homestuck is doing here, at least during Act 1 and 2, it's how Hussey is thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. Because everything that, that Dave says across all of Act 2 is just meta-commentary. Mm -hmm. Like, constantly. He is talking about, first, he is talking about black presidents and all that stuff that we were talking about, this kind of meta-genre commentary. And then he moves into constant and uninterrupted meta-commentary about his own life and about this puppet experience that he is having. And then it turns into kind of, uh, uh, as, you're, as you're kind of like reading here, the entire situation is meta commentary on the hussy and, and homestuck relationship at this point. Right. So uh, if we're thinking about these characters or one way to think about these characters, I guess I should say is that each of them is a particular vector into this space into like what homestuck is doing as a, um, uh, a media object. And John Egbert is the simplest version, which is that it is a game. Mm -hmm. And, Rose, at least from this perspective, is there is someone who is playing the game, mm -hmm. right? And that's the commentary that's going on there. With Spurb and, and the cursor, she is doing what the audience is doing by prompting the world. You know, she's this other prompting force. And then I guess also the, the vagrant is doing starts doing that as mm -hmm. well. Um, and then Dave is the, the, the vector into thinking about it is Dave is the author function, essentially, mm -hmm. given a voice. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, what does an author do and what is an author, uh, and what is a kind of authorial perspective? If, if any character has that here, as you're talking about, it's, it's absolutely Dave. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
uh, <laughs> by the end of this, uh, it's not as thrilling as it once was <laughs> when, when the puppets are really out to get you. Yeah. yeah. It's not puppet paranoia if they're really out to get yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, I... Yeah, so this is, I guess, you know, the, the the other thing to mention. Well, there's a couple more things that I want to cover with Dave. To start, uh, he gets on the internet, and uh, there's this bit. You asked me about this. Uh, I actually is this on it? Yeah, this is his bro's computer. Yes, it's his bro's computer. So he opens up the internet and he finds uh, complete bullshit which is a content aggregator. And you specifically messaged me about this because you were like, what, what, I wonder what this is. Because it's just like this thing on the desktop and you open it and how it looks is completely bizarre. It's just like all of these bands of color and you can like mouse over them and they expand. Uh, and someone mm -hmm. uh, in the readership actually made this uh, um, not too mm -hmm. long after these pages were dropped. Uh, and I, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been taken down or the hosting has died. Uh, but basically, this they made it into kind of like a skin for your RSS feed. Uh, and Hussey in the commentary has uh, some stuff to say here. Complete bullshit is basically the Internet by Andrew Hussey. This is my take on just about anything that aggregates content or otherwise connects people uh, with awful, overbearing garbage competing for your attention, like Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, 4chan, Tumblr, quote-unquote, organized into uselessly narrow, gaudy rows, all kinds of jittering and daring you to not get a headache. Uh, people probably don't realize that I don't actually like the internet much at all. Though I pioneer its woods, I consider them cruel and unforgiving and advise others to steer clear altogether, probably like real explorers used to do. What a metaphor. Yeah. Andrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. But, but also... Maybe this is an interesting um, place to put this or to think about it or maybe just to put a little stub in to address later. How much of Andrew Hussey is a character? That's a great question. I mean, that really is kind of a resonant question for me already in this is that how how much of. How much of a real human being is the figure Andrew Hussey mm -hmm. as it as that author is represented in all of these things mm -hmm. um, because for someone who is so deeply concerned with meta textual and meta moves, right? Always backing up one step away from the thing in front of you seems pretty weird for them to be actually a person in that regard, right? Like to, to represent themselves uh, truthfully constantly. Mm -hmm. Right. So am, am I meant to read a statement? Like I don't like the internet. Is that a real human opinion or is that uh, someone playing a character like of Andrew Hussey and what Andrew Hussey, the internet phenomenon's opinion is. Right. You know, it's kind of like the, uh, the difference between like Larry David in the real world and Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like one is an, a slight exaggeration in the character and, you know, and there's pieces of the real Larry David in there, but it's not the same person or like, um, you know, Gary Shandling on the Larry Sanders show. Larry Sanders uh, is kind of Gary Sa Shandling, but an exaggeration. You know, how much of Andrew Hussey as a public figure is an exaggeration of a real human being? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's a great question to ask because we keep talking about Hussey and that's because 
there is a way in which there are parts of this comic that are incomprehensible unless you're willing to look into Andrew Hussey and what Andrew Hussey has done or what they are known for. Hmm. Like the the comic kind of builds in uh, Hussey as a character in that way. And then, of course, we have then these two characters who are known for all of their mysterious layers of irony uh, where, you know, like Dave and bro, like we, we have we're closer to Dave. And then we find out that some of bro's irony might not be so ironic at all. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's the exact same sort of uh, circulation of concerns of like, well, wait a minute. Uh, you know, when when this character speaks with this voice, like to what extent are we to take that to be closer to the author or and this is also mm-hmm. this is Galloway's interface effect where the interface is not just like a window onto something. It is like this multi-form, uh, highly articulated like process of all of these pieces kind of having to slot together to mediate something for you to bring, you know, uh, an, an image or a feel an aesthetic feeling or an idea to you. Uh, and very quickly, you can kind of like get into what they what they call the the maison abem, right? Like just the mm-hmm. endless falling through in into the the meta uh, or what have you. Yeah, and so this is all to say, you know, when we when we talk about, well, as will become more necessary, I think, when we talk about hussy, right, in a broad sense, we're kind of talking about this figure, mm-hmm. you know, this this character, this like. Um, surface thing that exists there, right? That's producing and doing. And I don't know how much, I, I honestly don't know because it's actually kind of impossible to know without knowing this person. It's impossible to know how much of that is a real person and how much is a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's something that's worth keeping in mind as you listen to us talk about it and that I'm keeping in mind, you know, as I'm reading it, that who knows, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, hard to know what the, there's no... The, it's post ironic in that there is no authenticity, which the ironic supplanted already. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, welcome to Homestuck made this. World. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> curtain open. This is the curtain open moment of the, the, the whole show. So this is something as I'm reading this comic live that becomes kind of clear to me very early on. Now, obviously, you know, it's 2009. I'm not like a brilliant genius. I'm still, I think, a sophomore or yeah, I'm I'm just getting ready to become a junior or something in college. So I haven't done all of my deep reading, Uh, but there have always been sort of the things in texts that are interesting to me. Uh, So, you know, I was a teenager reading like Umberto Eco and Borges, and they are all about kind of like levels of referentiality of meta text and things like that. So this is one of the things that really keeps me plugged into Homestuck, even if I'm not as plugged into it as I'm going to be later on. Uh, And I know that one of the things that ended up being interesting to me about the comic at this point and something that, you know, touches on what we talked about a a few episodes ago, where we mentioned that in the Colonel Sassaker book, there's kind of this casual uh, racist joke. Uh, where the, the Sassaker character gets used to voice an old derogatory term for a mixed race person. Um, I brought that up. We talked about it, uh, you know, explain sort of, you know, why it's bad. Uh, and then in this act, 
we get a point where Rose, when we're kind of inhabiting Rose's perspective and she's, you know, uh, fiddling around with stuff in John's house, she kind of sees the, she sees the Sassaker book. And I think it's specifically the Sassaker book that fall, the older version that falls out of uh, the safe in John's dad's office. Uh, mm -hmm. She sees that and she's just like, oh, my God, like, why does this family have two copies of this book? Why would you need this? And she makes like a very brief uh, sort of thing like, you know, uh, like, would you really need something with like, you know, this much old like racist quips in it or something? So. Yeah. Like this is this is the this is the shit that would like fascinate me at this point in my life was sort of like seeing the piece by piece development of kind of a, a sort of dialogue or uh, in a sort of thing interior to the work itself. So we bring up uh, that joke earlier. Talk about how it's bad because it is still bad. Later on, we have another character who makes more or less like that same observation, right? Points at the same book and is like, hey, this book is racist. Then later on, we get the joke repeated in a different book because uh, John finally reads that Harry Anderson book and it reuses the exact same word. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's we see again that kind of irony of like, OK, like this was used. What did the author know or how did they intend it? And then we have a later character who seems to come in and kind of correct it because we have a character who can say like, hey, like that's racist. And then we have the narrative turn around and double down on the exact same thing. So there's this way in which the text feels like it is uh, both incorporating its own critique and then also trying to discard that or at least saying like, and you think that's critique? Well, I'm just going to do it again, which ties into um, to some extent, right, kind of the, the trollish nature of it, where you never quite know this object that you're talking to or trying to interact with or read. Uh, you can never quite pin down where where it is on uh, some of these uh, things or like where it wants to be. Well, it, it wants to live in the in the it, it wants both because both is what produces the humor here. Mm -hmm. Right. It's that uh, we know it's we know it's naughty. Right. This is a very particular kind of humor that is. Uh, it's so 2009 and I'm about to blow your mind with something <laughs> and I had to, had to Google and check, but, but, uh, I, that's so related to this, but, but it's, it's towing the line, mm -hmm. right? And it, it's towing the, the line in a way that I think that white creators in particular were doing at the time, uh, after, uh, you know, the, the kind of, uh, rise and then, uh, fall, <laughs> you know, or, or, or rise and then explosion maybe is the more, um, uh, appropriate term of, of things like the Chappelle show mm -hmm. um, that race humor becomes again, so important in the United States for a bunch of different reasons. One of those being uh, the, the election of a black president, right? Or we can't discount that. And the extreme racism that happened mm -hmm. there uh, hard to uh, much like the uh, uh, well, like many things, I guess. But if you, if you weren't there, it's easy to forget the kind of culture that it happened in and, uh, got to see a lot of, of, of thinly disguised as humor racism. And I don't think that's what's going on in Homestuck. I think that they are playing, I think that, that Hussey in particular is playing in a sandbox of towing the line and then almost cr crossing the line into explicit racism. That's the joke. Because in 2009, South Park debuted a character where Cartman plays a superhero mm. who is a raccoon mm -hmm. whose name is a uh, racial slur for black people. Hmm. And uh, that character has continued to show up all the time, shows up in uh, 
in the South Park video game from a couple years ago or a few years ago mm-hmm. now. Um, and uh, to the extent where I have seen uh, grown adults be like, even now today, be like, that's not racist. It's it's a raccoon. It's a joke. Mm-hmm. It's not racist. Um, it, but but and, and I don't say, look, it, I, the, the name is racist. I, I don't think this is good. I think this is bad humor in a broad sense. I think it's deeply offensive um uh in a broad sense which is not to say that you can't just dismiss that and uh, plenty of people do and people uh, plenty of of uh people watch the show and don't care about it um but uh that's this is the same joke that's happening mm-hmm. here um which is we are towing the line we know that this is a racially charged word the joke is that this is a racially charged word that is being used in such a way that we're signaling that it's funny mm-hmm. We're in on the joke. We can't be racist. Mm-hmm. We're in on the joke. It's not racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker did that, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, this is not this is not a wildly diverse creative team uh, in that regard, and, and a team of writers, I, I, I suppose as well. But so that's all to say, right? Like it's the same joke. It's the exact same style and format and tone of joke, and that was in vogue in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised to see you yeah. show up. Well, and relevant to this, we need to talk about uh, another character who shows up here. Lil Cal, a uh, bro's prized ventriloquist dummy who is just a weird looking son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> He's howdy doody. Like begin with howdy doody. <laughs> y- yeah. <laughs> like I just I remember so I remember the first time little Cal showed up and me just sort of like looking at this thing and being like I don't even know what the hell is going on <laughs> with this puppet like it's just so uh it, it's like he's a ventriloquist dummy with kind of like a, a, a glassy howdy doody head with like rosy cheeks and a big smile and big bright blue eyes. Uh, but he's also got like a gold tooth and he's wearing a backwards baseball cap. Uh, and also he appears to be wearing like a orange tuxedo or a little suit. You can glimpse like a bow tie. But over that, he is wearing a sports jersey and a like, you know, big gold medallion. So this is, uh, you know, I think uh, we're supposed to understand when John refers to like the ironic puppet raps or whatever, uh, that Lil Cal is a big part of the ironic puppet rap uh, thing, whatever's going on there because of uh this weird way that we have a ventriloquist dummy in a suit then sort of dressed like stereotypically like a, you know, quote unquote, a rapper or whatever. Right. It's got that kind of aesthetic. Yeah. And it's white. Yes. I feel like that's an important that's a, like a, an, imp- an important and uh, critical thing. It is a white doll. It kind of looks like Fred Durst. Yeah, actually. Yeah. You. Puppet Fred Durst. <laughs> That's kind of, and that's that's exactly sort of the thing that's being referenced here with you know like the white guy yeah. rapper. Yeah, yeah, that's actually that's great rapper. Hey, let's let, let's put a little respect on uh, Fred Durst's name. He was a rap rocker. Rap rocker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the the other thing to mention here, Lil Cal is not a name that is original to this comic. A very very old comic that uh, or a series of older comics that Hussey had on their old website. Um, had the debut of a character named Lil Cal, and uh, these comics were just racist jokes. 
that is all they were uh they're you know taken down from the website but um they like they have been collated in various like tumblr uh posts and things like that so they are still out and around but they're just uh, little cal is a character who is a a short um like you know black child with a massive afro uh and the kind of the way that uh he gets introduced in those comics is kind of like a, a parody of uh like silver spoons or dif- different strokes um the uh the sort of like 80s trend of having uh the the sitcom of like here is like a a young uh, african-american child who has been adopted by a white foster family who are wealthy or whatever so like that's kind of where that character seems to come from but they're named little cal and the comics themselves are just like they're just racist just uh, uh the punchlines are a chance to write in a, a quote-unquote like black voice right um and say just wildly offensive things that's there that exists uh this name gets pulled forward. Uh, and the thing that I was thinking uh, that really helped contextualize this, and I I brought this up to you before we were recording, because I was like, man, I wonder if this is a reach. Uh, but the thing that sort of helps pull this together is the fact that Arrested Development had already basically done both ends of this joke or like had done a, a, a version of a joke that seems to be echoed here with the puppet Franklin. Uh, who is just, yeah, yes. uh, if you have not seen Arrested Development, um, uh, one of the characters, Job, uh, has a puppet from when he's a child named Franklin, and it's a, like, a horribly offensive caricature of, like, a, uh, black person. And, uh, at some, what, what happens to it? Doesn't it, does it get, like, run through a washer or something? Uh, <laughs> yes, and it's, it's turned white. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Franklin is, uh, it's almost like this uh, cursed object in the show mm-hmm. to where uh, when Job puts it on, he can't help but be extremely offensive in, I mean, because Franklin's like a black exploitation character. Yes. And so uh, Job can't help but do it, but can't help but perform and puppet this kind of um, black, you know, black stereotype. And so, yeah, eventually Franklin gets turned white. Mm-hmm. And uh, the content changes a little bit there. But but the joke is th- this exact same joke. I mean, it's like, look at all the stereotypes that a white person can say um, and can like replicate uncritically. And that's the mm-hmm. joke. Yeah. So uh, like that uh, is just something to keep in mind with with the character of Lil Cal and kind of, you know, and this is this is a thing that the comic begs for in some ways by being so uh, uh tied into Hussey's old work by, by so many of these things kind of being, uh, uh, pulled forward again. Yeah. I mean, what, what counts and what doesn't. Right. Exactly. Is, is the mm-hmm. question, right? Right. Like when, when we talk about the Hussey oeuvre, right. Of, uh, snaking connections between all the different things, uh, uh it would be tempting to be like, if it's unflattering, don't talk about mm-hmm. it. And I think that, that that's, I, I don't know about the Homestuck fandom because I'm not in the Homestuck fandom, obviously. But that's how lots of fandoms work, mm-hmm. right? You know, when I when I dip into or see what you know contemporary big fandoms are doing in comics or in film, that, that's that tends to be the vibe here, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, 
I, I absolutely believe that people can change and that the things that they say on that are tossed off tweets or whatever should not probably determine the course of the entirety of the rest of their life. I think that what happens in that situation is probably good and correct. But the, uh, the general maneuver here is that like, if, if every piece at every turn of Homestuck is this kind of like omnivorous, uh, a commentary machine on internet culture in the world, when you reuse a name of work that was publicly accessible and out there and, and working around, uh, it, that's what the thing is. Like you're pulling that into this big machine mm-hmm. on, on purposefully. Um, and, uh, I, I think that it comes with a bunch of implications that, that, you know, that Hussey made a bunch of just straight up racist comics for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, as well as this like other rap comic that shows up here, um, that also has, oh, yeah. and it don't stop. Yeah. Which, which has its own, like, you know, I read a few pages of that and uh, I don't think I would read more. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to be honest with you, because it seems like Hussey is getting a lot of excitement out of uh, saying, uh, writing new and novel ways that people who are uh, rappers who are not white talk about the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, when when those rappers in wor- real the real world do that, that is way different than than a white person writing a comic book about it. Um, so uh, a lot, lot of weird vibes for this episode. I'll tell yeah. you that. I think, like many of the other jokes we've talked about so far on this show, I don't think that Lil' Cal, the puppet, and Homestuck is particularly beyond the pale. I do think the stuff that's in the Lil' Cal comics that I read, I think that is beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that I think that is sufficiently beyond what was the the normative center of like just normal old racist jokes in the world. That uh, there's something pretty weird going on. Yeah. There. No. Uh, the. I, I wouldn't suggest you track those down, to be honest. No, I mean they feel they feel a little four chan-y, is how they is like the word. But actually, yes, yes it's yes. weird that we call that sort of like four chan humor because I think that's how it gets sort of like. Uh, I mean, it, it's a it's a quick way to communicate to someone how it can be pretty bad. But the thing that I realized when I was reflecting on this last night actually was that I was getting linked to stuff like that before I even knew what four chan was. Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways, right, this this was like this was the Internet before then. Uh, but still, um, like it's it's bad stuff. Yeah, I had a friend in middle school who was uh, who like self-described uh, himself and then very quickly stopped self-describing himself as like a script kitty. Oh, <laughs> if you yeah. That term, uh, resonates uh-huh. for you. Um, but 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 who, uh, you know, certainly was involved in like low level internet uh hackery and things like that and certainly was involved in like early chan culture and stuff like that um but he would definitely show me these kinds of things pretty regularly so they was these were being passed around and like this style of comic was often being passed around in irc chats Mm -hmm. and stuff like that uh or like posting on forums um and he would like show me these things or, or whatever this is like the person who like showed me how how it was possible to pirate music using WinMX. <laughs> if you remember that program. Yes. So uh so like that's that's the level of like, you know, I don't know, cultural milieu that, that he was in. Yeah. Um but uh but yeah, so you know, very much I think you're right. You know, it's that is something that gets kind of evoked now as quote unquote chan culture, but was just like a big part of internet subculture at the time and probably still mm-hmm. is. So we've talked about Lil Cal. Um, 
the other extremely messed up thing, I guess, that uh, we can talk about with regard to Dave is this Muppet Babies comic. Dang, that one of those Muppet Babies got murdered. <laughs> so, I mean, this is... This is really funny. This is actually one of the few things that I like legitimately laughed at in, in this other than like it was like ghost grandma and that really got me. And then like I told you about stairs, bro. That really got me. And then the, the, the ending of this comic in particular really, really, really got me. I OK, I'm glad that this worked out for you because this is one of those things where I think like I read it and it's one of the. I, I said this a couple times at this point, but it's one of the funniest things ever to me is just this Muppet Babies comic. <laughs> and I always think like, what does a person who if they just met me and then it was like, hey, here's Michael. Here's a thing that he thinks is like fall on the floor laughing hilarious and then showed them the Muppet Babies comic. What are they going to think of me? Yeah. Uh, well, you want to you want to describe it really briefly and I'll tell you why I find it so funny. So how this comic works. Well, so Dave is trying to leave his brother's room. And as he's doing so, he gets weirded out by all of these puppets. He tries to step out and he realizes his bro has left a comic uh, taped to the back of the door so he would see it on his way out. And it's a uh, Rolf from the Muppet Babies. And if you don't know what the Muppet Babies are, uh, what if the Muppets were babies? There you go. That's the conceit. I'm assuming you know what the Muppets are. Uh, hold on. I'm actually confused. What's a baby? Mm, okay. So uh, a baby is like a wiggler or a grub, uh, but for a human. Mm -hmm. Except weirdly enough, the Muppets oh. aren't human. So I don't know why they're producing babies. Oh, what's a human? Mm. Uh, they're like, uh, monkeys who won't give you a can opener. Hmm. Is that like a uh, chicken with all the feathers ripped out? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> That's the range touch touch yeah. for you right there. Whoa. Hey. Uh, so it's, all it's right. Rolf from the Muppet Babies. Rolf, who's the, the dog Muppet. Um, and he's like, what have I done? And he's looking at, uh, what it's, it's animal, uh, the, the drummer from the Muppets, like who just, you know, yells mm -hmm. things who's like from the electric mayhem. Yeah. I think you mean he's not from the from, Muppets. Yes, from Dr. Teeth and the electric mayhem. Um, well, but yeah, he's not from Dr. Teeth. He's from the, electric <sighs> mayhem, Michael. he's, he's lying <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> immobile is the important part. <laughs> <laughs> what if that becomes my thing? Like, where, where you know, like, so much about, uh, uh, about, like, uh, you know, the long form history of theater? What if my thing becomes really specific information about the Muppets? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we, well, we don't know what Gonzo is, but he is an well, alien. I think Muppets from Space. Didn't Muppets from Space answer that? Well, yeah, Jeffrey Tambor was in that, too. Oh, my God. A real connection to Arrested Development there. Dun, dun, dun. Boom, boom, boom. And Jeffrey Tambor played a very similar character in uh, the Hellboy film. He did. Oh, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Directed by Guillermo del Toro, who plays Animal in The Muppets. <laughs> it all comes together. Thank you, Guillermo. Yep. Uh, <laughs> eventually, anyway, I'm going to describe <laughs> this comic. comic. Eventually. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so Rolf, baby Rolf says, what have I done? And he's looking at Animal, who's like lying still on the floor. And he says, Animal, please, uh, please start breathing. Oh, God, please breathe. <laughs> it's OK. Make believe time is over. And Animal is just like lying there, clearly dead. And then Rolf is like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. 
Uh, what will Nanny say to me if she finds out? No one can uh, ever know. I have to hide the body. But where? Think, imagination. Ugh, the one time I really need you. And then a click as a light comes on. And then a disembodied voice says, Hello, Rolf. I want to play a game. And then Kermit in full makeup as uh, Billy the Puppet from the Saw movies comes slowly out of the darkness, just saying, I want to play a game. And like, that's the comic. <laughs> yeah. What, what a fucking choice. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what does it for me? Like, this is, in some ways, right, this is, like, bread and butter basic internet humor, right? What if, like, the Muppet Babies were secretly very fucked up? But what gets it for me, like, what nails this comic for me is how it takes the thing from the Muppet Babies cartoon, which is where they're always, like, using their imaginations, and they're like, think, imagination, think, um, and then takes that to, think, imagination, think, how do I hide the body? <laughs> Uh, that to me is not what is funny about this. What 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 is funny to me about this is that it is uh, so up its own ass, <laughs> <laughs> like so extremely like a niche bad idea. Like it, this is such a bad idea, mm -hmm. and it 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 goes over for me from like being bad to just like holy shit. And that's not ironic appreciation at all. It's just like the. Well, maybe it is if in the way that like bros irony exists, mm -hmm. because it is precisely the commitment to the mm -hmm. bit of, of Kermit being Billy the Puppet yeah. that really gets me like I there and like the slow zoom at the end uh, and like it, it, the fact that it's a comic that knows there's no ending to this. And so the the, the end is just the reveal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I just, I think it's quite good. Also, uh, the relationship between Nanny and the Muppets is exactly the relationship between the Guardians and the children in uh, Homestuck. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also more of a story behind this comic, if you wanted to know that. Well, I don't know if I want to know it, but I will, I will listen to what the story is. Okay. Well, it's, <laughs> so, uh, we already mentioned that Hussey had, you know, the, the forums that they were running. Um, and this came out of an extended bit on the forums where, uh, so also another thing about forum culture that you need to understand is that, and we talked about this a little bit in the previous episode where, uh, there are kind of like, there are gag accounts on Twitter now. In the same way, there would yep. be uh, gag accounts on uh, forums. Uh, so, you know, sometimes like just a person would pop up on the forum and they were clearly a bit and actually a poster on the something awful forums that we mentioned last time. Super Mecha Godzilla uh, is a person who like quite consistently people would have uh, debates about whether or not that person was a bit right, like whether or not that was a gag account uh, posing as like a real person. It's so it's that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. This is this is what forums culture is. So someone shows up on Andrew Hussey's forums uh, pretending to be Jigsaw and demands that Andrew Hussey draw them some Muppet Babies pornography. Uh-huh. And uh, like uh, Hussey comes into the thread and this is actually, I believe, uh, contained in the unofficial Homestuck archive in case you want to go back and look at it. Like, I think they mirrored it in there. It's called Cheerful Bear Play Me. Um, 
so someone is pretending to be Jigsaw, but it's Jigsaw demanding, like tra- acting as if they have like trapped Andrew Hussey in a room and they're like, now draw me like Muppet Babies pornography. And so uh, Hussey kind of like, you know, plays back and forth with this poster for a bit. And a couple of other people come in and start, uh, you know, playing with the bit. And eventually what happens is that this comic gets produced. Uh, And that's really the punchline to the thread. And then it gets reincorporated here into the comic. Hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. (laughs) Great. Great. No thoughts on that, huh? (laughs) Not a single thought. Like head empty. Absolutely head empty. But it's it's getting like what counts? What doesn't count? Well, this got included in the unofficial Homestuck archive. (laughs) uh, And... (laughs) I guess it counts. Yeah. So was it? I mean, it it is an original page. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is five six five. So yeah. Weird. Bizarre. Uh, but this is this is also you know it's a, an example of this like this weird uh, tendency that Hussey has, and I we've said this about Stephen King before. I think uh, over on just King things, which is that like Stephen King has never had an idea for a story that he did not try to write. And there is never a story that Stephen King has not tried to write that he has not subsequently tried to sell and publish. Um, Andrew Hussey does a similar thing, only it's there is not one single thing that Andrew Hussey seems to have made that Andrew Hussey has not been turned around and referenced in something else that they have made. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's it's this it is like a, a weird, like constant practice uh, that is just I mean, I don't know what to do with it uh, in a big sense, but like it's happening. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm assuming that's going to just keep mm-hmm. it keeps happening as it were. It does keep happening, so to speak. Uh, this does lead to uh, Dave being covered in a pile of puppets and then the one other chat log that is directly drawn from an actual chat log that Hussey just repurposed for the comic is the one where he is yelling at Rose and he's just like just totally flipping out Dave is about being covered in all of these lewd puppets Uh, he says to her Mm -hmm. like you're the one who should be wrist deep in puppet ass and she has no idea what he's talking about he just goes off entirely like yelling about how he hates these puppets and doesn't want anything to do with them anymore Uh, it's considered I think a a kind of like classic Dave moment uh, precisely because it's the it's the moment where you see his irony break Uh, this is my least favorite Dave moment really yeah, absolutely. This is where I was like, I, I don't like this character. <laughs> like it, it went from like, it went from like, oh, whatever to like, I don't, I hate, well, it's this kind of, uh, this is also something I really associate with the time. This kind of like purposeful overreach, what has like now turned into like, uh, uh, like those Twitter threads that like that are like, let's get this shit started. Fuck nuggets, Mm -hmm. whatever. Like this, that has its predecessor in like this over aggressive, like funny writing style of like this, this kind of mode, whatever this is. And then like Maddox, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. what I talked about a little bit before. Um, Like that is all of a piece to me. And like, I, I don't know. Not for me. Like this, I was like, all right, I get it. Like, mm-hmm. ha ha ha. I actually think the Rose part here is way funnier. It is. Uh, 
where Rose makes like a, a poem about having sex with puppets. Yes, no, and that's such a good thing because we already discussed like Dave's uh, tiresome, bad, ironic raps. And then I love seeing Rose turn the bit around on him and then also customize it to herself. <laughs> Just like, mm-hmm. OK, I'm going to yes. do the thing that you're doing constantly, uh, but I'm going to do it in like my own brand of obnoxiousness. And in that way, she like outperforms Dave. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a good way of putting it, too. It's like not that I specifically uh, hate this character. And if you love Dave, then uh, more power to you. It's This is a fictional character who is not real. I, I, <laughs> I'm glad you like a character in here, but uh, it is precisely because like, uh, I think that it's a question of like which bit is funnier, you know, because each of these characters are a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think the Rose bit is just way funnier uh, than like the the Dave bit, who is that it's just like overwrought, overreaching into like a very particular niche of, of Internet humor. And that's just like I've just seen it so much. Rose is not necessarily something you see uh, so much. Uh, there, there's a weird connection to like, and I'm only kind of realizing this as I'm talking about it, but um, uh, Dave still exists heavily in internet culture because Dave has transformed into like video game men who yell. Mm, yeah. Who have like, like uh video game paraphernalia behind them on like a mm-hmm. shelf. That's Dave today. Yeah. Dave just barely missed being a YouTuber. Yes, Dave would be a YouTuber today, Mm -hmm. for sure. Instead of making ironic, uh, you know, uh, uh, comics, he would be... Dave Strider's heated gaming moment. And and so that's the thing, is like, you can look and not very hard, and you can find a lot of Dave still kicking Mm -hmm. around. Uh, And so the bid is not even remotely interesting to me in Mm -hmm. that way. Um, If I want, I can like really easily find someone like trying to curse creatively somewhere. Um, people are not making that much. Well, maybe actually there could be a really strong underground of, uh, puppet pornography poems that exist. Uh, say that three times fast. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm not seeing that all the time and that's not being thrown in my face by an algorithm very often. Mm-hmm. So just not using the right algorithms, man. <laughs> that's exactly, I got I got to get on, uh, uh, duck, duck, go. <laughs> that's where, that's where they're doing that. Oh, that got me. Um, but anyway, so this whole time that all this shit is happening, Poor John Egbert is like trying to fight him. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about all of the like? And I love that Rose is like using the environment to help him, like by dropping the refrigerator on things. What do you think about the jokes where like the refrigerator gets to level up? I think that's a funny joke, and I guess the level up mechanic is uh, worth it to have that joke because that's funny. But it's only funny like the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think doesn't. Doesn't Colonel Sassaker also level up at some yeah, point? Yeah, when the Sassaker book gets dropped on an imp, Colonel Sassaker levels up to one-man <laughs> julep vacuum. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Hussey has something in the commentary there where they're like, what I really like about this is that it suggests that prior to reaching this stage, it requires several men to stand around and suck up juleps. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just, uh, he's ready to do it, but uh, I, yeah. But but so I think those are like funny jokes and uh, they work and they keep the plot moving. I mean, what I like about John Egbert and Rose here is that for the most part, even though there's a lot of like this 
picking up uh whatever picking up the gems and and you know build materials and building stuff it, at least like it's moving the plot along things are happening and we are progressing from point a to point d mm-hmm. um at, at a pretty good pace and then we go back to like dave exploring the kitchen and his brother's room and like not as interesting to me yeah um i like the pogo hammer that i mentioned before toby fox shows up in this thing mm-hmm. Yeah, we get our first. I think to- for the first time, yeah, our first Toby Fox uh, musical cue, uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, which track is that? Uh, John sleeps. Skyen Ma- Magicant. Yes, that's right. So John uh, goes to sleep, and we get our first uh, Toby Fox uh, song. Mm-hmm. Uh, just accompanies John going to sleep, and this is kind of an mm-hmm. excuse to show us like John's dream, which is all of these clouds kind of shooting out of the sky and taking on familiar forms. Like one takes on the face of his dad. I think one takes on like the Betty Crocker logo because John has this like, you know, uh, uh, unreasonable seething hatred about Betty Crocker because he is so upset with his dad's constant baking. Uh, And then we Mm -hmm. see this silhouette that comes out that is, uh, you know, a strange, mysterious figure. uh, And it's the the figure of the fourth kid, Gigi, whom we haven't met yet. But as I already said, there was so much uh, kind of speculation about this character already at this point on the forums that uh, Hussey kind of, you know, extra diegetically had had to step into a forum thread and be like, listen, it's it's a 13 year old girl. Like there's not some like huge plot twist where this turns out to be some other character or uh, something totally unexpected. It's like, that's what this character is going to be. Um, So the, like, sort of my first kind of uh, big moment of sadness, right? The the ways that, you know, things get lost to time is I wanted to show you a particular, like, uh, not serious, but like fan speculation of what this character would look like based on the silhouette alone. Uh, and I cannot find it for the life of me. <laughs> but it is so funny because someone was like, here's what I think the fourth kid looks like. And they posted the silhouette and they filled it in. And it basically looks like Mr. Saturn from Earthbound. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a weird, like misshapen Mr. Saturn. It's just very funny. <laughs> the idea of imagining like these three kids and then their fourth friend, this thing. <laughs> <laughs> It looks nothing like they all look exactly the same with different hair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's good stuff. That's good uh, speculation. Well, so here's a question. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I I've said this before in other things, but uh, I've never played Undertale. Mm-hmm. Is that part of Homestuck? <laughs> like, it, I, and I, I don't mean literally. Mm-hmm. Is it part of Homestuck? But it is the kind of thing where in the show we will need to, or in order to do due diligence, we should play Undertale at the end and talk about it? Or is that so far beyond that, uh, even though they intersect in, in ways, is that so far beyond that we don't even need to think about it? Undertale is definitely its own kind of distinct thing. Uh, obviously, there are kind of like, uh, there, there, there's overlap in kind of... Uh, concept in kind of broad thematic interest uh and in sort of tone and style of humor that, that's shared between them um and there are going to be later on uh very explicit kind of like undertale references and easter eggs uh but mm-hmm. we don't need to play undertale to figure out what's going on in homestuck they they really do exist kind of uh in parallel to one another in that way yeah, because so so Toby Fox's 
did some stuff for this. Toby Fox is the creator of Undertale. Sorry, I didn't say that at the beginning in case you don't know. Uh, uh, created Undertale RPG, kind of a throwback RPG that a lot of people really like and has a similar, and I imagine a crossover um, fandom with, with Homestuck. Um, they were roommates at one point? Is that true? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Uh, that's, what, that's what I have uh, heard on this here internet, but I don't, I don't know. Uh, okay, well, any, but anyway, that's a notable thing to show up here. I haven't recognized any of the other people who show up here as, you know, from other work. Oh, a thing actually I should mention is that you, you were able to say like, oh, Toby Fox has shown up here. That is because in the archive that we're using uh, on pages with sound, there is a credit embedded in the page that is in the archive. Mm -hmm. That was not on the original uh, website. So uh, how artists were credited on the website is that there was a separate page for credits and it was just a list of here, like here is every page so far with sound. And then here is the person who uh, composed that music. Uh, so it was a different thing. Mm. So uh, just to sort of highlight uh, for you that uh, that the, you can actually turn this off too, if you want to. Uh, but the, Archive, I think, does a, a kind of neat thing by putting all of those credits at the bottom of those flash pages. Yeah, that's super helpful. And you can click on it. And you can like uh, go to the Bandcamp page mm -hmm. if you want to purchase it and stuff like that, which is pretty the cool. other thing that I related to that uh, is I think it's about mm -hmm. this point that Hussey and it's not, uh, you know, I, I could get a specific date if I need to. Um, I just need to go back and find the old news post. But uh, it's it's about this point that Hussey starts selling the music on Bandcamp. And then that's when, uh, mm. you know, the 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 people who are composing the music that ends up on those albums, um, you know, they get some some part of that profit, some part of that revenue. So uh, one of the things I need to, I think, be, you know, gesturing at uh, is that we're seeing kind of the Homestuck uh, machine uh, building up in the background uh, in, in ways that aren't necessarily as uh, evident if you're reading through the comic itself. And pretty quickly, too. Yes. I mean, this is three months in. Wait, four, four months in? April, May, June, July, August. Yeah. Yeah, so four months. Uh, so that's interesting. The thing that happens actually right after this is uh, where I had my first fan theory. Mm-hmm. That I shared with you. I uh, People don't know, but I'm often sharing my theories with uh, uh, Michael over DM. And I, so I had my first fan theory here because uh, there's a big there are these big imps, these big monsters that are there. And they're like, uh, you know, John Egbert's trying to fight them in this like uh, hell space that he has entered into this limbo zone. And uh, there are all these imps, these little imps running around with Harlequin hats on. And then there's these big imps and the little imps are also scared of it. And so John is hiding behind um, uh, his bed with this little imp hiding from the big monster. And, uh, the command is be the imp. Mm -hmm. And then the imp, uh, uh, the, the next thing, this is a comic five or six, uh, six, five, six. And the, so command is John be the imp. And it says, you be the imp and quick and quickly abscond the fuck out of there. <laughs> this is what weaker adversaries do whenever things get too hot to handle, which is frequently. And then it like goes back and, and the imp is gone and John is like still having to fight this uh, big monster. And I said, I sent you a message. I said, Michael, this imp, this is the, the wandering vagabond. Mm -hmm. I was like, this, this is it. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, uh, this like uh, completely like chromatic black skin. Uh, you know, obviously these things are related. That, that's what's going on here. Uh, we, we don't see what his face looks like. So we don't know if it's an imp or not. We can see its hands. 
and you were like, oh, ho, ho, you'll learn about that soon. And the comic literally, like, 15 pages later is like, yep, you're not an imp. <laughs> when you're like, when they're like playing as the wandering vagabond. So I was like, oh, okay. And then you explained to me that that was like a prominent fan theory at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, like, people were, you know, like, we, we still don't really know uh, who the vagabond is and, and, and what they're up mm-hmm. to. Um, but one of the theories was that uh, they are like an imp from the game like that that we've seen already uh somehow in the future and quite specifically there's a command when we take over wv and it's wv be the imp this means nothing to you you are not an imp you have no idea what an imp is and you will not entertain such frivolous and childish ideas ever again you feel stupid and hate yourself a little for even considering it (laughs) yes hussy says and this is in the commentary The response uh, uh, by the top panel is mostly addressing this bad theory that people had at the time that WV might be an imp, even though he has totally different proportions and anatomical traits. Uh, There are always a lot of really weak theories circulating around, and occasionally the story will pick out a certain theory and remind people how terrible it is. I think this is very courteous of the story, specifically debunking certain theories so that fans can stop obsessing over them and get back to focusing on what's really important, shipping. Uh, I, this is an interesting, again, this is kind of the hussy character, right? Like, right. This like trickster God, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like, why would that be? And, and, uh, notably, I'm not like offended that I'm being called an idiot by Andrew Hussey. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, that's fine, I guess. But, uh, what's interesting to me, there's like, that's his possible or uh, as viable a theory as anything else that you could say about this comic like why would that be uniquely bad mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i'm i'm glad that this kind of came up here because this is a this is an interesting dynamic that is going to persist throughout this comic and in talking about it uh and what it establishes also is that this comic is going to explicitly respond to the people who are reading it in ways that are that go beyond uh commands uh mm-hmm. like hussy is establishing here and i think you know it's it's kind of bubbled up in other places probably already but here it's very explicit like i am going to take a fan theory a thing that readers are sort of like excited and talking about i'm going to pull it in the story just long enough to say that it's bullshit um mm-hmm. and here it's kind of you know being presented with this like sly like as a service to you the reader kind of thing uh but Later on, this is going to take different forms where like fan theories have like determinant effects on, I think, things that happen in the story. Like Hussey finds theories that they like and incorporate those into the narrative going forward um, in a way that is interesting, especially when that is uh, sort of, you know, seen in relief against uh, what Hussey does with theories that they think are stupid. Um, that they don't like, which is that why would anyone ever have that thought? That is the worst idea anyone has ever had. We're never going to speak of it again. Um, it, you know, touches on something you said, I think, in in part two of, of this very first episode of our show, uh, which is that I, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but uh, you were talking about how this comic is like routing people through uh, looking at the comic, responding to it, trying to figure out the game systems embedded in the comic, and it's doing all this by reflecting back like actual game FAQs and like forums discourse and things back at them. 
And I think what you said is that, it, you know, it, it, you can see how it leads to something contentious. Uh, and it, in, in this kind of instance, right, Hussey's response to that potential co contentiousness is to lean into it, to be kind of mm -hmm. uh, even more of a jerk uh, than is necessary uh, in order to shoot down a theory that is, you know, silly and fun, but largely harmless. And that's not me making some sort of, again, the, thinking about the, the conversation we've already had. That's not me making some sort of moral judgment about Andrew Hussey, the person like, the author function that is being built for this comic is this deeply strange and ambivalent thing that by turns is, uh, you know, sort of allowing the readers the sense that, oh, something's going to happen and it's you're going to have an effect on it or like something really cool is coming up. And mm -hmm. also this sense of like, that's stupid or like, ha ha ha, I tricked you. I psyched you out. Uh, in fact, like to talk about another mm -hmm. DM conversation, yep. <laughs> uh, when you said you like DM'd me and you're like, what am I being psyched out about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and this has to do with some, what I was saying earlier, too, right? Of like these like these maneuvers of like psyching you out in this uh, in this comic or. I can't speak to what it would be like live, obviously, maybe it would have a different effect, but it's almost just like anything could happen <laughs> like what I, I don't really have actual expectations about what i'm supposed to be getting next there's no psyching me out here because i don't have i have no expectation that any given action will succeed or not succeed because it's so clear that like the the author behind this has a very trolly relationship with the fans mm -hmm. and so it's like i don't I, I mean maybe those work i don't and, and maybe that's something for you to to fill in with some like fan response, maybe to the end of act two, if you, if you read through some forums with mm -hmm. that. But like when I saw that and like saw the psych out thing, I was like, what, what am I being psyched out about? I don't, I don't understand. I feel like I'm doing like a Rocco from mega 64 impression right now, but <laughs> cause that, this is often the way that he'll do something. He'll be, he'll say a situation. He'll be like, I don't, I don't understand what's going on. But that literally is how I felt. <laughs> I was like, what am I being, what is happening? Like, I don't, Okay, you you did or did not get out of the place. I guess you got out of it. Cool. <laughs> like I, you could not have, and you could have died. That would not also be shocking to me in any way. Uh, a meteor hit uh, hit the world last act. I don't <laughs> like what what would be outside of the bounds of expectation here. Um, so it, it seems like the comic is making the assumption that I believe that this is like a fully rationalist universe when. I think that's kind of foolish based on what's being put in front of me. You know, you can only call me a big dummy so many times before I stop having any expectations. I just kind of take what's coming. The, the thing that is key here is that a lot of these psych out pages come in the last page of a day's update. So if you're reading this live, you start out this series of updates where it's like, you know, Dave uh, uh, ascend to the highest point of the building. So he's going to go up and, and confront his bro. Uh, we've got this cool flash, all this music, uh, you know, it's it's building tension. Uh, Dave steps out like the sun is beating down overhead and it's reflecting in his sunglasses where his stiller shades, um, you know, all, all of this kind of like atmosphere and mood and scene setting. And we're finally going to fight, bro. And then the like last page of the update is psych. No, we're going to like jump to this one page of GG. And now we're going to and, and then we think like, OK, well, we're just going to start GG now. No, psych out again. Uh, now we're going to flip back to uh, WV and that's the character we're going to control now. So the ways that people like the, the 
what is happening is that people on the forums are like, I cannot wait until such an event happens because clearly like Dave and his brother are going to have some sort of showdown like, uh, you know, uh, John and his dad had their strife. Rose and mom had their strife. So Dave and bro are going to have a, a strife animation. So people are already like the previous moves of the comic have primed people for kind of the next little set piece. And the question really is when does that set piece arrive? Um, and so what Hussey is doing here with these updates is like, okay, I'm going to lead you up to the next set piece. Oh, psych. Actually, it's a different set piece. Oh, psych. Again, I'm going to give you a sort of totally new set piece, which is uh, WV. And uh, I'm going to take some more reader commands, right? We're going to be WV and, and just mess around in this bunker for a little bit. Uh and so that's kind of, I think, how that is working uh, and how people respond to this, how they respond to these psych outs is like, oh, hussy, you magnificent bastard. Huh. Right, because there are people who think like, oh, this is the update. We're finally going to get that strife animation. And it turns out we don't. But like, ah, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was all on me because hussy is playing like this uh, incredible game behind the scenes. It is a dynamic also that hussy is kind of encouraging uh, through this sort of uh, performance of just incredible production, putting out so many of these pages and like, you know, teasing all of these little plot developments and setting up all of these little, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams puzzle box mysteries uh, to get people kind of invested in it. Uh, so there is a, a way in which the comic is asking the reader to take on this position of someone who is going to be like, oh, hussy, you bastard, at least in kind of the serial updates, because I think, you know, your yeah. point is it stands. I don't know if these land in precisely the right way in an archival form. Well, I guess I wasn't thinking I, I think all that's actually really helpful because I think maybe the people who are reading day to day had a better sense of the formula because everything that you just said, it the the parallel, if we trace the parallels, right? Like we get John Egbert and he goes through, you know, he's introduced in the same way and he goes through a particular kind of arc of exploring his his world and he has a strife animation with his dad, right? And Rose, the same thing has happened. And so logically the same thing would happen, right? Dave would fight his bro or we would have something like that. And the... uh so like from day to day, if you're looking for the patterns, you know, reading it as it's serially coming out, that would come out. So I, I think, you know, as I'm reading it in the archive, I'm not paying attention because I can read so much at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not really paying attention to those kinds of like formal parallels that, that are happening. Um, and so I guess that when you are when when someone was reading it serially, you would be looking for I know X, Y, Z has already happened. So ABC is going to also happen because it already happened in these other ways. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm just looking for like next big plot development and not these like micro rhythmic patterns. Mm -hmm. But, but if I were more attuned as a serial reader, I probably would. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes sense. That's actually very helpful. Mm -hmm. The, uh, you want to talk about this uh, big ending cinematic, close out the episode with that since we have not talked about it at all. And it seems deeply important. Yeah. I mean, so this talking about like, how are people responding? Uh, this is re this ending uh, animation is real like Hussy the Magnificent Bastard Hours. This is in the threads uh, that I'm reading. This is when people are like, oh, damn, this is better than Problem Sleuth. 
or like I was kind of on the mm. fence until now, but this is definitely better than Problem Sleuth or like this. This is this is where a lot of people um, recognize the story as kind of upping its game. Uh, I'm going to start saying this all the time. I'm going to be like eating a sandwich. I'm like, this is so much better than Problem <laughs> Sleuth. <laughs> Can't believe how much better than Problem Sleuth this this sandwich is. Uh, so sorry, it's, 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 I, I think that's very good. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so this is, you know, this is a moment where people are like, oh, holy shit, because uh, the scale of the story changes dramatically or like uh, this is the other weird thing to me about this animation, actually, is that I think on the one hand, like I think this animation is good. Like, I do think it does a really great job kind of selling what it's trying to sell, which is this expansiveness of scale. Um, but in terms of like revelations uh, for it, uh it's weird because a lot of it is stuff that we already know, which is that like a uh, wayward vagabond is in the future and people like, you know, freak out, I think, and, and sort of, you know, uh, understandably like a uh, wayward vagabond pokes up out of the bunker and we see like the broken hand of the wizard statue from Rose's house. And so suddenly we realize mm -hmm. that like, oh, this isn't just some random place in the wasteland. Uh, this is like, you know, near Rose's house, presumably. Or a place where Rose's house ended up, or, or at least that statue ended up. Um, and my weirdness on this animation was like, that was somehow something I had just assumed that uh, Wavered Vagabond was in a location that we had already seen. So that didn't strike me as much of a revelation, nor did kind of the time thing. Uh, but I think what really is important, uh, I mean, all of this is important, but like, I think the real big reveal here is... Uh, Meteors coming through the sky, a portal are not just coming at the time that the game is being played. And we get a little bit of this mm -hmm. from the uh, the news clippings we find in dad's office where dad has been collecting clippings about meteor strikes for decades or like going back decades. So the meteors that the game is causing to hit the earth did not just start when these kids started playing the game. We see that even in Earth's prehistoric history, this game was uh, launching meteors at the surface of the planet. And these meteors we discover, uh, or like it's sort of suggested, have something in or on them that results in the uh, construction of like these bunkers or the construction of this frog temple. Uh, so the game that starts on April 13th, 2009 has some sort of temporal hook in the history of this planet uh, in a way that is just like, wait a minute, what? How did this happen? How did this work? And it ties in with something from Rose's uh, FAQ uh, where she mentions like, you know, presumably like this game is made for two players, like one server and one client who is then like, you know, server and client also. Uh, but mm -hmm. because of how we've set this up, it's going to have to be like a daisy chain until we can close the loop. Uh, and in theory, we could have as many players as we wanted to. We could pull as many players as we wanted to into this game. And every single one of us, uh, when we prototyped our kernel sprite, would add something to the uh, like generation of the enemies. However, Rose notes, uh, it seems like our session is only set up for four players. And does this mean that we are somehow destined to only have four players? And if so, how does the game know that? 
Mm-hmm. So th- there's there's like this raised issue of like time. And at this point, of course, uh, and even before then, because time travel plays into problem sleuth, people were kind of wondering, like, when's time travel stuff going to come in? When's time shenanigans going to come in? Uh, and uh, in the wayward vagabond is playing with John in the past. Right. From his book. Right, right. So wayward vagabond is in the future, giving commands to John mm-hmm. in the past and sort of the future and the past are happening narratively they're happening simultaneously but in terms of like sort of normative chronology right we would think that uh well if wayward vagabond is giving commands in the future then there is something locked in about what john is doing in the past oh that's funny hmm mm-hmm. i don't know hmm. I, I guess but also maybe not Oh, but no, that is the case. That is the case. That has to be the case. No, you're right, because uh, otherwise the pumpkin could have been teleported from the past into the present. Right, because, yeah, yeah, Wayward Vagabond tries to purify a pumpkin that they ate earlier, and because they ate it, it would cause a time paradox, and so they just, you know, pull in a bunch of slime. Yeah, so so it has to, nothing, it it has been established that nothing paradoxical can happen in this this world. Mm Uh, okay, well, that's interesting. But but the reason I was asking that is like there's nothing to prevent, say, the wayward vagabond from going into where the Frog Temple used to be, say, in the next act, where the Frog Temple used to be operating a computer that uh, a million years in the past would uh, cause a meteor to spawn and then destroy that island and then make the temple possible to begin mm-hmm. with, right? Like that loop is based on what the timey stuff that we've seen so far. Um, any given moment in any given time from forward to backward can always connect mm-hmm. up. Uh, and it's wholly deterministic in that way. So uh, that's pretty interesting, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's that. Uh, the other thing to notice here uh, is that this is when we get like hard evidence of where all of the kids live, except for Dave, uh, because when uh, WV is, you know, zooming around in the rocket, actually before then, um, when he's like looking at the uh, the monitors and everything, uh, mm-hmm. there are GPS coordinates and those are real. Oh. So like uh, what? And this is a thing that from this flash where these GPS coordinates are sh- are flashing up on the screen and, and like charting as WV like sails over like the remains of the North American continent. Um People who are watching the flashes are like taking note of these and then like plugging them into uh, Google Maps and they find out that Rose lives in upstate New York. In fact, uh, we didn't talk about this uh, earlier, but when we see the reveal of her house, it turns out she lives in Falling Water by Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, I didn't connect those things yeah. up. <laughs> she That's quite she, she lives in uh, one of the most famous houses in America in, in terms of like architectural design, or at least I don't think of it. If it's not precisely that, it's clearly intended to evoke that because the, the waterfall mm-hmm. runs underneath the, the living room floor. Mm. Um, so there's that. Uh, we find out that John lives in a suburb of Seattle. And in fact, if you go to Google Maps, you can find the specific neighborhood where John's house is supposed to be. And the street layout is exactly the same. Uh, John's house has a street address. Like the place where John's house is, is an actual lot. Who? Someone lives in John Egbert's house? Yes. I bet that I bet it's so expensive mm-hmm. being a Seattle suburb. Mm-hmm. And now, definitely. Wow. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, now. And it's like, <laughs> like you're like showing the house and you're being like, and, and as an added benefit, weirdos show yeah. up and take their photograph outside. <laughs> Kids with horns and pale makeup. I don't know why, but for some reason <laughs> they show up outside. Well, it's either that or you're, you know, uh, the woman who lives in Laura Palmer's house in uh, Snoqualmie oh, Falls, Washington. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, the uh, here's what's really funny. I know that Homestuck is associated with people in, in white makeup and horns, but I don't know why. I have no idea why. And this, what's really funny is I thought that I would know that by this point, and still yeah. don't have no idea. We've got so long before you know why. Really? Uh, That's the most iconic thing. No one's dressing up at like John Egbert anywhere. I don't see that. <laughs> oh, all the John fans weeping quietly uh, because their star was stolen. Um, I guess. Oh, but the other the GPS coordinates. So uh, the other thing there then is that this island, uh, which I don't is not actually an island, uh, but it has GPS coordinates. If you put them in, it takes you to some place in, you know, uh, the Pacific Ocean. So that is where WV is heading. And one of the things that the fans have put together is that even though Dave's precise location is currently unknown, uh, we know he's he's between Rose and John. So somewhere in between upstate New York and, uh, you know, the suburbs of Seattle, uh, the things that people have put together is like, oh, uh, Gigi lives on the island. Like that's kind of a, a fan theory or a, a not even really a fan theory because it's going to be a. Uh, confirmed very shortly uh but Mm. like that's a thing that the fans piece together ahead of time uh and this is part of why you know i think that this end of act animation is worth talking about and it's particularly worth talking about uh with our old friend alexander galloway in his book the internet (laughs) interface effect uh particularly this might sound weird but maybe not so much if you've been listening to this show particularly his chapter on the television show 24 starring Kiefer sutherland yep so 24 if you don't remember uh is airing at this time it actually ends in 2010 so just you know the year after uh, homestuck begins it airs on Fox. It is about Kiefer Sutherland, who plays Jack Bauer, a like, you know, government counterterrorist uh, uh, agent. And this is like it is like the post 9-11 show is, is one of the ways of thinking about it, because uh, the conceit is that every season takes place in a single day over the course of 24 hours. So every episode shows you one hour of this day of this counterterrorism operator's life. Uh, and Galloway gets into sort of, you know, this political context of being this post 9-11 show. And, and this is actually very much worth reading just by the way, um, because Galloway does this fantastic thing uh, where he uh, corrects the the timeline, right? Like this is supposed to be 24 hours and he goes through and he's like, well, OK, every episode is let's say it's an hour a day. But how many of those hours are actually how many how many minutes does an episode actually last? Because of course there have to be commercials. Uh, So when we correct for like commercial time, how long is the day actually? And then what does this mean about sort of the production of, you know, television as a commodity in, in, uh, you know, post nine 11 millennial uh, neoliberal capitalism and so on and so forth. Um, There's a lot of interesting things going on there. Uh, But the other interesting thing that happens is that, 
uh, Galloway reads 24 as kind of indicative of a new aesthetics of an information economy or kind of an informatic economy or an informatic popular culture. So how 24 works as visually is, of course, terrorism is going to happen. So Jack Bauer and all of his friends have to be running from place to place to stop nefarious plots. Uh, and because every episode is taking place concurrently during the or like all the characters are doing things concurrently during the same hour, it means you have like two sides of the screen where two things are happening in parallel. Uh, and there's like a, you know, after every commercial break and in certain scenes, a timer shows up or yeah shows up on the screen to let you know at what point in the day are we? So all of these ticking clocks, all of these kind of concurrent plot lines. Um, and then, of course, like just an incredible amount of plot twists, as it turns out, the people we thought were the terrorists might not have been the terrorists or the terrorists might have got over one of us or wh whatever. Um, here is what Galloway has to say. <clears throat> This is pure information as aphrodisiac, a cult of epistemological reversal, surprise reversals, the gotcha ending, thinking one thing and then learning later that it was all otherwise. These many rapidly unexpected and changing narrative states evoke a quote, informatic pleasure over and above any sense of visual pleasure. It is Aristotle's peripatia, only repeated at such rapid frequency that it eclipses all other formal techniques. It is informatics as style. Uh, so what Galloway means there by informatics as style is the fact that to, to sit and watch 24, you have to be parsing uh, you know, parallel streams of information. What is Jack Bauer doing? What is this other character doing? What is the third character who I'm seeing on screen doing? And then how does this all relate to the overarching timeline that I already am being constantly reminded of because the clock keeps flashing up on the screen? Uh, and, and then on top of that, in, in the actual plot, of course, we have all of these reversals. So I think uh, if you've looked at Homestuck, if you're someone who's reading along, I think maybe you can see some of the echoes here, uh, not only in just kind of this uh, escalation of plot or in kind of these twists, uh, but in this idea of informatics as style, which to me very strongly evokes what is happening when the people on the forums are like, wait a minute. Here's some GPS coordinates, and I'm going to treat this as if it's an ARG, and I'm going to dig into it, and I'm going to find out that John Egbert has an actual house in a suburb of Seattle, and you can go there if you want to. And uh, it's that kind of uh, you know, informatic pleasure that Galloway describes of taking information and then doing something with it and like having something at the end. I took something, I took some information, I processed it in some way, and now I have more information, uh, which is that, you know, this comic is even more detailed than I thought it was. There's even more things going on behind the scenes. It presents that sort of sensor, that illusion, um, precisely because it points you back out into the real world. And then the entire reason you get pointed back out into the real world is to turn back around and see how the real world was already in the fiction to begin with. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, so, uh, here's a thought that I had while watching this animation. I think your, your explanation of this animation was also very helpful. Uh, presumably this character that we see is GG, mm -hmm. right? What a little goober of a character. <laughs> She's very interesting. Like I just saw that. 
I just saw some guys. I thought, what a little goober, <laughs> like what a little goof. <laughs> uh, there, there's, there's a quaintness and like a, a little uh, goofiness to this. Uh, whoever this character is, GG, that is not really present in any other ones. The closest is to John Egbert, who was also a little bit of a goober. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, you're gonna have something yeah. going on. You're. I character. mean, in addition to being psychic. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is is. I just assume, so that's really fascinating that people have, characters have had said something about me and Psychic. I'm not, I wasn't clear on that. I assumed maybe that uh, they just knew about the future. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing, right? Is that uh, Gigi is constantly, apparently to the other kids, saying things to them about like what is going to happen in the future. And those things turn out to be mm-hmm. true. And that's like a thing, like one of my favorite things is when uh, Gigi is talking to Rose kind of at the beginning of this section that we've been discussing. And Rose is just like so over the fact that Gigi can see and see into the future is just like, wow, like what a because what happens is like uh, she's just gotten her birthday present from John. And then Gigi Mm -hmm. uh, messages her and is like, did you get your birthday present from John? And Rose is like, I sure did. And what a coincidence that you happened to message me about it right after I opened it up. Wow. What a coincidence. Who can believe it? The I I really do uh, the style that Gigi has written and you know we talked about that a little bit uh, before but uh, what an endearing person of <laughs> <laughs> just like uh, naively endearing mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe uh, I I just think it's very funny and also <laughs> I really love, <laughs> I love that it's like uh, that we know from that kind of like uh, thing about the present that we find out. That uh, Gigi sent John's present so long ago. Yes. You know, it took so long to get there, and then it got dumped off in that hole. In the yes. car. Um, <laughs> um, very good. Uh, Great stuff. Well, uh, that about wraps it up then for episode one. We have completed it finally. Uh, we have done both Act 1 and Act 2 of Homestuck, and next time we will start on Episode 2, we're Ranged Touch. Uh, if you want to know more about us, you can follow us on Twitter, at Ranged Touch. Uh, you can also find videos and stuff that we do on YouTube.com slash Ranged Touch, and if you wish to support our efforts, uh, whether this show or others, you can go to Patreon.com slash Ranged Touch and uh, kick us a, a little bit of money, however much you want. There are various tiers that you can check out and see what sorts of cool bonus stuff you might get your hands on but literally even a dollar uh can help us uh, and ensure that we have time to read this stuff uh record about it that i have uh kind of you know resources to buy these books to like you know buy my premium forum memberships that get me access to archived threads and things like that so i can do this research you are all a part of that uh if you are helping it out thanks so much and if you're just listening um thank you so much too uh, if you want to help out, but, uh, you know, monetarily is not really, you know, uh, something that you're capable of at the moment, uh, telling a friend about this show, someone who you think might like Homestuck or, uh, at least might like to interface with Homestuck, uh, with us kind of in between them and the comic, uh, or, you know, rate this five stars on, on iTunes or Apple podcasts, I guess it's called now, uh, you know, rate us, mm-hmm. uh, give us good reviews, tell people about us. We don't run ads. This is all word of mouth and any, uh, 
in any sort of proselytizing you might do uh, will uh, be greatly appreciated because, well, I can't speak to what's happening with Cameron, but I'm having a wonderful time. It uh, it, it could be worse. <laughs> no, I was I say, maybe good. is that I, the new I, sign uh, off? <laughs> it could it could be worse. Uh, no, I think I I've enjoyed what we have read so far. It, it um. I'm I'm broken record, but when the uh, when it's spinning its wheels, you can feel it spinning its wheels, and and as you've said, the, the it becomes a little bit more um, author driven going forward rather than community driven, and I think that will be a very interesting turn to me because I'm very interested in how it keeps up the bulk and volume because as I understand, the it only gets more voluminous, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about how that's happening if without the wheel spinning that we've, you know, of like, let's touch everything in a room and stuff like that. Um, and maybe that just keeps happening, but without any audience input, I don't know. I have no idea, but next time we'll be, uh, talking about, uh, some other parts of Homestuck. Yeah. Yeah. Episode two, we will cover, uh, both act three and the intermission. And so for part one of episode two, uh, if you're reading along, we are going to be reading up to page nine fifty two. So, uh, you know, catch you next time when we are discussing uh, fine at at the end, we will be discussing a page that uh, is titled Who's This Guy? So (laughs) great, great. Well, until next time, who's this guy? (laughs) 